Okay, everybody, why don't we go ahead and uh, join together. Welcome. It's good to see you guys. Feels like we've lost a few, but we got you, and that's good. Maybe next week they'll get back. I guess it's a crazy week or whatever. But um, anyway, we have some folks online, right? Who do we have? Who do we have? Yeah. Uh, we have Joanne Fugette. She's right. to say hello. Hello, Joanne. And three other unnamed parties. <laughs> unnamed. Ooh, anonymous. Well, they haven't chimed in yet. They haven't chimed in yet. Chime in, people. Mm-hmm. Who are you? Anyway, why don't we, uh, what, what, what did y'all, uh, question number one. What, 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 that was probably a kind of hard one to come off the streets and start with. <laughs> what, what the heck's going on here? I, I usually start with a little opinionated question. Right? I don't know. I just kind of went right for the, for the big one there. So anybody uh, get a sense for what's going on with that? What is Finney's doctrine of, what's his anthropology there in, in relationship to the problem? What's the problem? How does he see the problem? That we have with God. And it gets to how we define sin. Yeah. It just seems that he's saying um, we're, we're in some sense born without any morality. Yeah. At some age, we are capable of making moral decisions, and, and that's when um, we, when our sin, na- oh, not our sin, when sin is revealed. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, a decision, or um, I guess he calls it a voluntary act, rather mm-hmm. than something born or innate in yeah. human nature. I think I, I saw, I heard y'all going off to the cannibal, the age kind of thing. I don't know that. I think he's trying to paint a picture that sin is not innate. You said that perfectly. Um, I should have gotten other people to talk. Actually, I was just going right into it with you. Anybody else have a thought before I do that? I, I think that the biggest um, point that he's trying to make is that there's a human agency in sin mm-hmm. and that if we were to reduce it to like original sin where you have basically the infants with sinful nature that they've inherited then you have this problem of well you know if the infant dies you know? mm-hmm. and so I think that also conversion um, because sin is voluntary conversion is also a voluntary act as well mm-hmm. so he's definitely working with this issue of free will and this issue of responsibility, moral responsibility Trying, and he comes out in this way where it, it seems like and we'll look at it in a minute and we'll see some more quotes that are pretty explicit that you're right I mean the, the key thing is he doesn't see sin as innate it's, you, we don't have a nature that is sinful. It's really a clean slate. We're born with this kind of empty slate. We're not righteous. We're not unrighteous. We're an empty slate. And then over time, that's where he starts getting into it, we begin to write on that slate. <laughs> and, then, and we inherit, the way he sees the influence is it's, sin has been passed down like bad habits from one generation to another to another to another. Okay, so if that's the case, though, if the idea is that it's not something that's inherently wrong with our nature for, for at some point, but it's just basically moral choices, purely moral choices. Now, remember, if you remember our whole doctrine of free will and, and um, decree, what did we say about that? We're going to say what? Sovereignty, free will. Either or? Both and. Both and. We're going to understand a sovereignty. We're going to understand a free will. 
and in the mystery of things, secondary causes, first causes, etc. Um, and so, uh, so the key thing here is that he's, if, if that's the case, what's the Holy Spirit doing? Well, you're not thinking so much about being born again, as in you are dead. I don't hear a guy, I don't hear him describing us as dead, not in the real sense of lifeless, moral lifelessness, incapability. He hear, he sees it more in that we are, uh, that we are making bad choices. Therefore, the Holy Spirit comes on and less a new creation, it's more of a, what? He's sort of, he's, he's arguing us into the kingdom of God. He's convincing us. He's, uh, he's working on us. It's not the fact that the Holy Spirit's not there, but it's a very different Holy Spirit. So that's sort of the, just the introduction. We're going to get deep into that in a minute because this is very important, though, because how you discern the problem is obviously going to be then how you discern the solution. You can see where this is going in terms of what is faith in, etc. All right, next question was, uh, how do you explain that? Um, what, what's going on with these people that say, Lord, Lord, but I never knew you? What did y'all think? Try to sit down today. I was thinking it, it could be a cultural thing. It could be that you are in a community where going to church and um, you know, seeming spiritual is um, just kind of part of the thing that you do. And, okay. And that so I guess you'd call that nominal Christianity or something like that? In name and confusing, yeah, thinking, yeah, it could be a cultural. You're, you're part of a culture. Like I think of the Southern culture. Mm -hmm. And it's changing, but... Okay, so spurious religious conversions. This is a person who really just joined a... A, a cult, a, 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 in the, not in a bad word. I just mean a, a, a social movement or something like that. I hear you. What else could be going on here? Go ahead. You. Oh, I mean, I, I would also think that I've, this, and Matthew is talking about those who claim Lord, Lord in their own box, okay. how they fit the Lord and their faith into their own box. So that the, you know, at the, the judgment okay. day, they the Lord, Lord that they know is not the Lord of the Bible. Okay. So they've got a false god. They they yes. corrupted the God in a way that it's not even the true God that they're believing in. Correct. Okay. Good. What else? I think that. Oh. Go ahead. I think you were next. Oh me? Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of people that, that chase after all the promises, all the good stuff. Oh, okay. And, they don't really care that much for the provider, uh -huh. but it's all the good stuff. Yeah, we see people being rebuked in the in the Matthew as well, right? You're just coming for the for the show, mm -hmm. so that's it's it can be signs, the signs and wonders. So it can be the the emotional. Uh, it's a high. It's it's a experience. It's the experience of it all. Or they want the healing. They yeah. want the food from okay. them feeding the 5,000, making them So they haven't grappled with the real problem of their own sin and the need of a Savior kind of thing. Okay, good. Yeah. I think there's a works righteousness thing at work in this passage, they too. Do. They're saying, yeah. Lord, Lord, we did this, and we did this, and we did all these mighty works in your name, not mm -hmm. we've sinned and we're not worthy, but yeah. we're asking your forgiveness. So it really begs the question of faith and how we define faith. Mm -hmm. What is saving faith? Now, why do you think I picked on that a little bit? Why, 
why did I choose to do that issue on saving faith, do you think? What, what's going on there? Why, why the, the title, saving faith? Do you think there's another kind of faith? Yeah. Unsaving faith. Okay, so that's interesting. <laughs> have you thought about that? In other words, uh, anybody have a thought on that? Yeah, go on. Anybody else? Sarah does, but she's shy. I forget what I said. <laughs> she had said that there were lots of things that we can have faith in. It yeah. doesn't mean it's going to save us. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, the Bible never, ever, it's interesting, but the Bible never encounters an atheist. Your Bible doesn't even recognize the concept. The Bible uses what paradigm to debunk sin? What's the, what's the debunking? Idols, exactly. There's always another God. It's, a, it's faith misplaced. And so the key here is not, do you have faith? And of course, in the modern era, we hear that a lot. And faith could be just positive thinking. Faith can be a lot of things. No, that, there's got to be a content to that faith that is the tr- the content that relates to what would save you, not just having faith. Keep the faith. You know. Well, that's that's so. I think that's a pretty relevant issue for our day. You know that some, we believe in faith. Faith is not something we believe in. <laughs> faith is believing in something. It demands an object, and the object is going to determine whether it's saving or not. Um, and so that's really important. Um, what do you all think? Do you, any other comments about these, these roundtables? So why don't we uh, start with prayer, and then and let's just get started. Would you, Trevor? Sure. Father, thank you for this evening, and thank you for bringing us all together. I pray that you would bless this study, and that we would walk away tonight knowing you better than we did before. Mm-hmm. Pray this in your name. Amen. So y'all can uh, forgive me. I'm a little bit pooped today for some reason. I'm just feeling it. But um, So I hope I'm, I'm not quite as energetic. Maybe you'll have to be the energy. But uh, let's, let's turn to the doctrine of sin. Uh, it was at the end of last week's handout. I want us to start there. We're going to get to the other handout as well. But, um, you know, this is a wonderful quote by Charles Hodge. Uh, he's doing a, what's called a constitutional history of the Christian Church of the United States of America. It's a big old volume, and it's really a, a, a history of early re- colonial religion and all the way up through the 19th century. But, um, but one of the things that he does here is, is just remind us of why we need to talk about sin. Um, and so would, would someone just read that? First paragraph. It's on page. It's where it's at the end of. It's on page uh, seven of last week's thing. Y'all there? You there? There you go. Could someone read it? Somebody have it close enough where they can read it? Those who were brought to the Savior were all prepared for it by a sharp law work of conviction discovering to them in a heart-affecting manner their sinfulness both by nature and practice as well as their liableness to damnation for their original and actual transgressions. Neither could they see any way in themselves by which they could escape the divine vengeance for their whole past lives were not only a continued act of rebellion against God but their present endeavors better their state such as prayers and the life were so imperfect that they could not endure them, and much less they concluded, what a holy God. They all confessed the justice of God and their eternal perdition, and thus were shut up to the blessed necessity of seeking relief by faith in Christ alone. 
A leading characteristic of this work were a deep conviction of sin, arising from clear apprehensions of the extent and spirituality of the divine law. This conviction consisted in a, in a humbling sense of both guilt and corruption. It led to the acknowledgement of the justice of God and their co condemnation and of their entire helplessness in themselves. What are some things that just stick out to you about that? Thank you for, about that. He's describing uh, the characteristic of a true conversion and a true, and also what, what precedes true revival. So what, what jumps out at you here what, what, by this description of the precondition to conversion here? Well, in the um, second sentence where it says, neither could they see any way in themselves yeah. by which they could escape. So there really has to be a kind of, a, 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 they, ha, they would have had to meet their, their uh, powerlessness over, I mean, you know, think about what that's saying. Um, you, you know, the idea, we, we have to, you, you know, like the 12-step thing, you have to hit the bottom somewhere. You have, to, you have to come to that place where you finally are, what, rid of self-trust uh, or confidence. You know that you can't do it. They recognize a need. A need. But a need that you can't meet. You, right. you, you've worked on it. So there is a, this is very important because we're, we may want to talk about, you know, children and what does it mean? How do we evaluate a child for their coming to the Lord's table? And we're looking for the evidence of what? A true conversion versus a spurious one, the ones that Christ talked about. And there are a lot of reasons people could, could come to be, you know, and say, hey, I'm ready. You know, I, I want to profess my faith in Christ. It could be, I want to please my parents. It's, I want to, all the kids in the youth group are doing it, so I'm going to do it. You know, I want to be part of the gang. You know, uh, it can be... Uh, a very low view of sin, which means, you know, well, do you sin? No. Well, uh, tell me, you know, what do you mean by that? You know, or I, I, I used to want an iPad, but I don't anymore. So now I think I'm okay. I'm a pretty good Christian, you know, or, or something like that. So and I've actually heard that, not not to the point of I don't sin, but that's kind of the, but the the point is 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 clearly what you what you're saying, Lisa, is there is an impotency. There is a Hopelessness, an exasperation point, where 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 you cry out like Paul in Romans seven eight, you know, oh my God, who will set me free from this body of death? I can't escape it, and it takes sometimes some time. It takes people getting getting in their life long enough to to take responsibility for it. Sometimes it means having to leave your parents, you know, to college or whatever, or high school. But somehow you you this is a person that's you see it's several things. One, their impotency. Two, they're they're taking responsibility for their sin, in the sense that they know it's them. It's not the devil made me do it, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Anything else that pops out at you? Realizing the depth of sin to the level of saying they couldn't endure it, much less a holy God. Yeah. So the, there's a sense in which they are they you know if you think of it, we're going to talk about the difference between original sin and actual sins, right? And you're getting at that right there. The original sin is what? We'll look at this in a minute, but what do you think it is? What's original sin? Literally. The first sin. Original sin. I know you know it. Genesis 3. Well, yeah, but I'm actually getting you specific here. I mean, it's even more concrete. What did they do? Yeah, they rejected God's lordship 
but when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? They they rejected his lordship. They they uh, they they relied upon themselves, and so original sin is 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 rejecting God's lordship and salvation, power, and life for us. We separated ourselves, and then all these actual sins are manifestations of that, right? And what you're seeing in that point that you're making is, at some point you have to come to believe it's not just that you're not just uh, grieving the consequences of sin. Oh man, you know I made horrible mistakes and my life is going bad. That's the consequences of sin. But it's not just grieving that; it's grieving that God has been offended, that you have rejected the most loving person, you know, being that you've ever had in your life, and you rejected him. And it happens this being is the source of life, so therefore. To reject life, God, life, is to reject, is to die, is to choose death, even if you think you're choosing life in some other idol or whatever you're, you're switching off for. So good. So yeah, that's a great little quote, though, and I think it's important because it sets the, the tone. So let's just walk through, uh, why don't you just go right, since we don't, I didn't, you know, go to the uh, confession there right under that. That in there? Well, that, you, if you could go to the confession that you pulled up earlier, chapter six. So uh, I didn't. I forgot to put it in the uh, handout there. So I'm going to just read it here. So could someone read our first one? So what's the first? Here, here's our. Here's the doctrine of original sin, if you will. Our first parents being seduced by the subtlety mm-hmm. and temptations of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This their their sin. God was. This their sin. God was pleased. Mm-hmm. According. According to the wise and holy counsel, to his wise and holy counsel, to permit having purposed to order it to his own glory. This is wow. not a very good sentence, is it? <laughs> um, <laughs> AKA what? What? They're, you know, what, what's the significance again? They're assuming, I, I, I would have loved to have filled this out a little bit more. They assume that everybody knows what the problem was in eating the forbidden fruit. And, of course, we just mentioned that. So then what happens? But what do you notice here? On the one hand, you hear that this their sin, God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit. So now God didn't sin. They did. But he purposed it. So he decreed it. There we are again, that mystery of they're free, they're responsible, but God didn't do it. He didn't sin. But... He purposed it. He decreed it. It was part of the order, the historical order of things, which were going to bring you, of course, to the real Remember, all of everything about salvation is what? Directed towards revealing who God is. Revelation is actually the ultimate goal here. Remember what, what he says all through Ezekiel? You know, I did not do this for your sake, but I did this for, for my name's sake, that the nations might know that I am the Lord, their God. So it's amazing how we think of salvation as being ultimately for us when it's penultimately for us. It's ultimately for the glory of God. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it, it, there, there's the problem. So if you could say, like, you know, well, is that fair that God would decree us to sin? And, and, and you would say, well, fair requires a standard. What, what's the metric you're going to measure anything by? Well, what we're learning is the metric we measure redemptive history by is does it reveal God? If it does, it's legit. It's fair. Because the purpose of the whole world was to reveal God. And you say, well, that's a pretty megalomaniac purpose. Well, 
But it's it's a valid purpose if God really is God. He's really that big, that worthy of being revealed. Now, if I told you my whole purpose in life is for you to 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 know me, or to uh, for me to reveal my my greatness to you, you would rightly just get up right now and leave and say that guy's lost his mind. You know, he's really a megalomaniac. But if I were God, who is the very source of all life and everything that we can think of, then to know him is to have life. Right? So, anyway, just a, a, so that's the first one. So we, that's original sin. The second one, read it. By this sin they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of souls, soul and body. All right, key two words there. Dead in sin, not sick, right. dead. Can you think of a passage that teaches that? Ephesians 2. Yep. They were dead in their trespasses, very clearly. So you're going to hear constantly that the role, what God needs to do is recreate them. That he needs to recreate them again. You know, give them, it's a born again thing that they need. It's not just a, let's, let's, let's try to convince these guys <laughs> to go, you know, do, do something. They're, we're incapable. So ironically... When are we free? Are we free pre-salvation or post-salvation? If we're dead, do you have the freedom to choose anything? No. The good, good? No. You, you can't do anything. Now you ask me, but Preston, do you mean non-Christians do nothing good? No. Well, yes and no. Those who do the will of my Father. Okay, so there, it's true that we believe in common grace, that God preserves goodness even in and for the people that are not believers, right? It's a, a common grace. But it's not a saving grace. Thus, we're getting to this saving faith issue. They distinguish between common grace and special grace, right? Or saving grace. And so, yeah, you can be a beautiful artist, but is anything that they do unstained by sin? Is anything we do unstained by sin, according to this? Look what it says. Holy defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. So we, we yeah, suffer, right? huh? Yeah, where all of it is dead, all of it is affected. We call that doctrine, you might want to know what that's called historically? Human depravity. Well, total depravity. Total depravity. Total depravity. Now, remember what I just said, though. Total depravity is not, I'm as bad as I could possibly be. I'm, I'm uncomfortable when people give graphic descriptions of our sin, of humanity, thinking about total depravity as if, we're just a bucket of dung or something like that. No, that's not true. We see, we're going to see later that God, cons you know, preserves a, a natural dignity in humanity and preserves a lot of, you know, there's a lot of this common grace that preserves the goodness of creation even if all of creation is now stained or polluted. So it's still got water. But the water is just, so, I mean, that's kind of a good analogy. You know, if you think about polluted water, it's not that there's any part of the water that's not polluted. But there's still H2O there. It's just stained or polluted H2O. Um, and I think that's important, too. Uh, next one, just kind of hitting these real quick, then we're going to go through the handout. Third, somebody reading that? They being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed, 
and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. All right, so this is a really important um, paragraph. What do you think this means, sin was imputed? My guess? It inherited from Adam. Yeah, but is it like a genetic inheritance? In Genesis chapter 5, it begins that uh, the genealogy and mm-hmm. Adam begat Seth yep. and it said in his own image yep. so it's generic it's a spirit if he, he no. caught it mm, that's not what imputed means though okay help me out, <laughs> help me out. I mean it's true that, that, that uh, there's, he goes on by look what he says by ordinary generation so we need to put that together with what you're saying is my point. It's not that you're wrong. I'm just saying, what 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 is imputeth getting to? Does anybody know? To impute I'm, something. I'm cheating a little bit. Okay, go ahead. Um, but uh, in Romans five, yes, it says, "Wherefore is one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned." Mm-hmm. So, so I, imparted, and I, I, yeah, I keep, yeah. keep the, but there's an so the imputing what? Go ahead. Uh, the the specific language that comes to mind from Romans five is credited or accounted. Yes, good. Um, so I think of it as an alien thing that is being okay. Applied. I mean, it was an act of judgment that God. There is a curse. Adam acted, and when he acted in original sin by rejecting God, the curse was on all of humanity, why? Why, why did, is that true? Who was Adam? What's the uniqueness of Adam here? Covenant head. Good. He's the covenant head. So he acted as our federal representative in this covenant. That's why it's so important to remember the covenant and all this stuff. We are, we are so, it's so hard for us to do this because we're so prone, post-enlightenment, to be individualistic. But in the Bible, while we are individuals... We are never just individuals. We are always a community in a covenant where the actions of one, a father are, you know, as the covenant head of a home, for instance, and we heard that a couple of weeks ago, is, in, you know, affects the rest of the generations. They suffer the consequences. That's not fair that the kid does. But, that's, but you all know that from a family. You know that if your parents make bad decisions and you're under their household, you're going to suffer the consequence of that bad decision. They go in debt and they go in bankruptcy, you're out of the house. And guess what? They're the kids. They didn't get to keep the house. They didn't make any decision, but they don't get to keep the house. You see? So, so imputed gets to that covenantal um, transaction wherein God, the, 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 the curse, if you will, or the judgment was against Adam and all his posterity. All he was representing as covenant head, which is all of humanity. And so if you don't understand that, it's not going to make any sense when you get to Romans 5. So that was a good reference there. Because the whole point of Romans 5 is that Christ now becomes what? We don't believe that Christ is the second Adam and that the way in which we are saved is we've got to be of the bloodlines of Jesus Christ. So if you were to interpret this as, well, sin was passed from generation to generation through the bloodlines, if you will. So there's this kind of genetic, spiritual genetic code or something going through history. 
it was passed down through bloodlines. No, we we're not going to say you have to be blood relative of Jesus Christ. Especially since he didn't have any children. <laughs> it would be a hard time, wouldn't it? <laughs> so you're going to have to say something else. It's it's a covenantal term. Imputed is a covenantal term. That's really huge, 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 huge. Because later you're going to you're what? Here's a little window into it. Um, therefore, when we are, what is the doctrine of justification when we get to do you think? If, if, if the doctrine of original sin is how sin, the sin of Adam is imputed to us and we are now cursed with a nature that is inclined towards sin, what we died in Adam, what's justification going to be? Is it going to be, I'll give you, I'll give you a choice. Is it to confer grace? Or is it to, well, you already used the word so you know what the answer is. Impute or credit grace. Is it a legal transaction? Or is it an effectual transaction? Which was it? What's justification? Legal or effectual? Can it be both? Nope. No. Or you'd lose your assurance. How about, how about as Jesus is the owner of the new covenant, all right? So his righteousness is imputed on us. Yeah, but it doesn't mean, if I'm asking you about justification, yeah. that's not makes us actually righteous. That's going to happen no, too. Right. That's going to happen too. Don't give me. Right. Remember, I'm teaching and training you to keep your categories distinct here. So we're going to talk about sanctification in a minute. And that's part of what Jesus does too. But that's not the but don't equate sanctification with justification. Justification is going to be just as Adam, God imputed Adam's sin to us, credited us, and therefore cursed us in Adam as a legal transaction under this covenant. So too, now in Christ, he credits us with righteousness, even though we it's not about us being righteous. So, okay, good. You, that's good. So, so the point here is that, that um, uh, in the Roman, in the Reformation, that became a huge, 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 huge point. You know, um, it, they were really trying to clarify. Now, hold it. If, if it's a conferring grace that makes me justified, now I'm going to have to examine what in order to get my assurance. What? Who said it back there? Me. Me and my righteousness. Right. I'm going to have to say, do I see evidence of righteousness in my life? And then you're going to get to the problem because, well, how much righteousness? I mean, do you see where this is going? Well, what is the law? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Okay, do I love the Lord God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? No. We learn, we're going to learn in a minute that it's not, you know, the whole law is a... a this word covenant keeps coming up. I hope you see this. If you break the one law, you've broken the whole covenant, haven't you? Right. That's what James is going to say. Y'all follow me here? Any of y'all want to ask questions about what I'm saying? So think of it covenantally. We are individuals, but we are never just individuals. This whole chapter is going to talk about us as a covenantal community. We are either under the covenant headship of Adam or we are under the covenant headship of Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Legally, we are either imputed sin 
or we're imputed righteousness. You could be unrighteous actually and be imputed righteous. In fact, we know that we are. That's the doctrine of justification. And it's going to have everything in the world to do with, you say, what's so practical about that? Well, you just, you just try to talk about your assurance and how many people are going to start to think and confuse, how can I be a Christian and still be struggling with this sin? Well, justification was never about you know, uh, conferring grace. It was about imputing grace. And so there's an old saying, we'll get to this later, but it's an old saying in church history, you know, we're saved by grace through faith alone, though faith is never alone. So we all know that the same people who are born again in order to have saving faith, the same born againness that enables me to believe, because I couldn't believe, remember I was dead, is the same faith that's going to continue to revive and regenerate me in my sanctification, making me actually more and more holy, hopefully. But that's a false way to gain assurance. Certainly you could ask the question, in fact, think about the membership vows, because they get at it perfectly. You, you know, one, we were kind of walking through it. What's the first one? You remember? You know, you, you confess your sin. You know, that I'm, that, that, and, then, and I'm justly deserving of God's, uh, you know, judgment. Second, you confess your faith in Christ, not yourself, and his righteousness imputed to you, basically. And third, you say, and we, and we, try, we will, what, to the best of our ability, endeavor to follow after Christ. Now, you can certainly say, are, are, you, are you struggling with sin? Good. That's, that's the sign of being born again. <laughs> You're struggling with sin by God's grace. You see? But if you were to, but but if you were to confuse that with justification, you're not going to have assurance. Did you want to say something back there? I wanted to ask about the difference of guilt being imputed and sin being imputed. Yeah. Because the language is yeah. guilt of the sin imputed. I, it's a good question. Um, I, you know, I, guilt is a legal term again, and therefore a covenantal term. And so the guilt, but I do think it's, it's. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a legal uh, status with God. You are guilty. And that's, ex- that's exactly what you're picking up on. I'm really proud of you for saying that. So yeah, it's a covenantal term. We're actually sinful too. Don't get me wrong. Remember, we're just talking about this other thing of imputed. So it's just so important, people, when we talk through this, to keep the categories. They're going to help you. They're going to save you from all kinds of errors. If you let the scripture... You, but that's where you have to read the scripture slower. And don't just flop over it, you know, real fast. When we when he's over there in Romans five talking about imputation, slow down. You go, okay, this could be conferring sin. <laughs> it wouldn't make any sense. It's, it's it's imputed or covenantal righteousness, which of course is. So let's look at the next one. So now we know that that uh, um, this number three. Now we're from from this original corruption. I'll just read it. Whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil. There it is. Total uh, depravity. Do precede all actual transgressions. So from this covenantal status and the state that is dead in its sins comes forth the actual sinning. So it's distinguishing between the covenantal and, the, and, and who we are by nature under that covenant versus the actual transgressions themselves. So this is where I think you could have analyzed Finney. Finney seems to knock off the first half, the original sin, and he's targeting, 
And so insofar as he's talking about actual sins, we could probably say, yeah, he's right. You know, you're, you're learning bad habits from parents and you're, you know, having this effect and da-da-da-da. But he, he divorces, but where does it originate? We're going to say it originates from original sin. And that nature that is rejecting God as our Lord. And then he goes on to say, I'm going to do this quickly because I know we have so much to do. This corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. Notice that. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and all the motions thereof are truly and properly sin. What, what did he just say there? Do, do, I mean, in other words, do you have a new nature? Yeah. You don't? As a Christian? A new nature? Yeah. I mean, he says that, you know, the corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. So Okay, but yeah, do we have a new nature? What does regenerated mean? Okay. So what he's saying is <laughs> Romans 7. You know, the very things I want to do, I don't do, I can't do, da 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 da, da. Um, And so there's a sense in which you, you have here, we're, we're both, we are... New creatures in Christ, but we are in a now not yet, this is that now not yet thing. We are now saved, the kingdom of God has now come, I am now a new creature, but I am not yet fully a new creature. There's still the remaining original, uh, you know, uh, old nature. So there's a new nature, old nature in conflict. Still under construction. Still under construction, <laughs> absolutely. It's good. And then finally, um, every sin, both original and actual, being a transgression of the righteous law of God, and contrary thereunto, doth in its own nature bring guilt upon the sinner, whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God and the curse of the law, and so made subject to death with all misery, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. What's he saying there? That, that the covenant is holistic. You know, and again, this, this makes sense if you think of a rental contract. You know, you, 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 can, you can say to a person, here's our contract, break it, and you're out. And let's say the contract says you're supposed to water the bushes. I mean, you've paid your bills, you've done everything else, the contract says water the bushes. Well, I didn't really think that was a big deal. Well, I have legal grounds to throw you out, supposedly. Now, it'll take about half a year, probably. But You see what's going on with that? And that's James' point. So let's just look. I want to look at our handout for real quickly. So now you you can go back to the handout. I, I want to kind of cover that. Yeah. So look at number three. When you think about sin, there's a lot of different ways that the scripture describes sin, right? One is, is uh, you know, just unbelief, of course. That we, we failed to believe in the lordship of God and trust him. So unbelief is one. Misplaced love is another one. You know, you certainly see that paradigm, don't you, in scripture? The whole harlotry metaphor, the, the adultery, spiritual adultery, you see metaphor going all the way through the scripture. Of course, it says it right here. You know, they will be lovers of this, lovers of that, lovers of this, rather than lovers of God. In, in 1 Timothy 3. Um, you have self-willed and voluntary let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. <coughs> God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But rather, each lust, with, but each when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. 
So there's a real sense in which it's, you know, we want to think of it as, it's a, it, what is sin? It's, it begins with lust. But, now, but what do we mean by lust? I don't just think of it as sexually or something. What is lust? It's kind of craving after something yeah. you don't have. Good. It's covetousness is another way to put it. It's, it's craving after something that God has not chosen to give you. Right. And that's an interesting thing, because what have you just done when you do that? What, what's, what's the etymology of that in terms of a spiritual etymology? What, 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 did, what were you doing when you, when you lusted, coveted, whatever? Eating the fruit off the tree. Well, yeah. <coughs> what else are you doing? Rejected what God has given you. <coughs> yeah. Wanted more than that. You've rejected his lordship. It always comes back to original <laughs> sin. You've rejected God's lordship. And try and you've not you've no longer trusted in the sovereign lordship of Christ and our or God in our life, right? So so when you when you're saying I want this and you're lusting after it, it's really a, a, a sin of unthankfulness for what you do what he's chosen to give you is not is sufficient enough. It's a sin of of distrust or unbelief that God has a good purpose for us and giving us what he has and has not. Um, it, it, you know, you start unwrapping this stuff, it's unbelievable how it always goes back to original sin. And that's been the, one of the theses we're, we're following here, right? Um, disobedience or transgression is another uh, paradigm that we think of about sin. That there's a law, we break it. So, and I'm sure there are many more. Can you think of any others in the scripture that are kind of explaining sin? I recently did a uh, study with the youth on sin, and it looked at the Hebrew words. And one of the Hebrew words means uh, misshapen or twisted. Yeah. So we might say if something goes pear-shaped, that's one of the connotations mm-hmm. of the Hebrew. And then another one of the Hebrew words is the metaphor we use to fall short, that um, mm-hmm. archery metaphor. Yeah, good. It's different words that have different Yeah, good. Things. Falling short of God's glory, uh, distorting God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Preston, some, some of the things that we've talked about early, early on have to do with people making bad choices. Mm-hmm. But I think this notion of sin, covetousness, or lust, rather mm-hmm. covetousness, and so forth, it isn't a choice. Uh, mm. Acting mm. upon it is a choice, mm. but the desire mm-hmm. uh, for it is not is not an. an yeah, that's a hard question, it, isn't it? it? Is goes back to something about this inherent, innate uh, thing that is in us, as opposed mm. to something that we rationalize. It's still simple, though. You're, it's still oh, simple. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But it's but not it's a choice. Just, it's, yeah. it's something right. different then I had some choices yeah. to make and I made the wrong choice. Yeah. It's rising It's deeper than that, within, isn't it? Yeah, like anger. Um, this little point on uh, Dick Kyes, I didn't have you read it, but let me just summarize what he's going to do with sin here. Um, he, he's going to, he's, he's talk, he's working off the paradigm of idolatry. And um, what Dick Kyes will say is that every idol has a far away and a nearby God. It's kind of getting to some of what James is talking about here. So the idea being that if you think of an idol, there's usually something that you that's somewhat tangible that you can work. You can manipulate something that you can put your your mind to working it. You know, manipulating it, if you will. Let's say money. So that would be you know a lot of people think well money's your idol, but usually that would be way 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 too simplistic. It's what does money represent that justifies 
you working it. So what does money mean to you? Well, my family's flourishing. It's, it's for my family. All of a sudden now, you're idolizing something that is good, but it's, but it's usurping the lordship of God. So all idols have a kind of, in Baal worship, you know, we look at Baal worship, and there is no such thing as a irrational idolatry. They're all rational. So what was Baal worship? Anybody know? Well, the nearby God was what? Anybody know? Baal was a fertility God. Wasn't it? Yeah, fertility. Good. So it's a fertility God. That's actually getting close to the, the far away, the, the intangible part of it. The tangible, there was a bull. And the ritual was temple prostitution. Let's, let's get this bull, you know, sexually aroused. So let's, what do we do? We're going to bring in temple prostitutes and there are going to be orgies going on. Your coffee's like Whoa. about to fall off. Thank you. And so, uh, but, what was the, but what was the ultimate, why, why were they doing this? Well, they, they're trying to, they want to see... Their, you know, fertility in, in, the, in the ground. They want to see the earth fertile. They want to see their cows and their, or their crops and all those things grow. And well, that's not a bad ambition, is it? It's not bad for me to want to, you know, to have food and to provide for my family. So be careful. Sin is very sinister. I think that's part of what I'm trying to pull out here, that there's an original sin that we got to keep, we got to work hard if you're going to struggle with sin to, to trace it back to what is the real problem. It's whenever we have either, you know, misplaced our trust or fear. What do we fear? We're to fear God. He's the one who really holds in the balance our flourishing, our, our blessed, being blessed or cursed. Not, you know, my education. Not my family even. Not anything is going, it really has the power to bless me. They're all just instruments in the hand of God who can bless me through them if he chooses. But God is the only one that has the power to make us flourish in, in, in life. And so that's what an original sin is when we reject that. We begin to replace him with something else in terms of that ultimate power to bless us and believing that that will bless us. So be careful of that. It's a very good little uh, paradigm that, that Dick Kyes works on. And he shows it biblically, but we won't go there now. Um, you know, you, you know, this is a, a. I love this quote here by John Craw, uh, by uh, John Stott. Um, I, I, this is the question, by the way, I asked you last week about sin. If you remember in the round in the round table, y'all remember that? So, look, just look at that. Someone read that. I mean, the question I, I'm asking here is: In what sense can we say that sin? Uh, Remember we talked about this, that sin, uh, what's the word I used? Uh, dignifies, that's the word I used, dignifies humanity. Why would it dignify humanity, the doctrine of sin? You may remember, we talked about it last week. But it's also in these quotes. Is there, when we see the world... And we see all the, the, the horribleness of it, right? If you didn't have the doctrine of sin, then what would be the problem? Humans. Humans. But, we, but, but actually, it's, 
It's humans with the doctrine of sin too, right? It's just the way things are. If there's the doctrine, it's, sin, it's, there's not something yeah. more beautiful. It would be. We are incapable. Sin is a moral category. It affirms that humanity has power. That we are not determined by mere, you know, uh, influence or, or determined by you know anything. There's a sense in which sin elevates humanity in the image of God to have real moral choice. We're volitional creatures. And so that dignifies us. But it also dignifies us and that it affirms that, that, that what is ugly about us is not really us. It's not who we were supposed to be. So in that sense, you see, it's us polluted. It's not just us. Humanity is glorious and beautiful. And we're polluted, and we've polluted it with our moral choices. And we get to see that fulfilled in Christ. Yeah, exactly. The perfect human. The perfect human, right. exactly. Good. And we'll see it in ourselves. Remember C.S. Lewis, that great quote: "We'll be tempted to worship each other in heaven. Oh, yeah. We'll be so glorious and beautiful without our sin." Um, so that's a very nice thing. The real thing I want to hit you though, and I'm going to just zip on down. Go down to verse eleven. I mean, number eleven. So. That quote about from Charles Finney, um, let's read the next part. It kind of clarif- clarifies it. Could somebody read that? It has been supposed. It has been supposed by many that there is a covenant made with Adam, such as this, that if he continued to obey the law for a limited period of time, all his posterity should be confirmed in holiness and happiness forever. What reason is for this belief I am unable to assert? And I am not aware that the doctrine is taught in the Bible. Adam was the natural head of the human race, and his sin has involved them in its consequences, but not on the principle that his sin is literally accounted. See, he, he, he just, boom, it's clear now what he's saying. That this is, this is a natural thing, and, and every individual goes through the fall individually, not because more by virtue of a natural relation to Adam, not by virtue of a covenantal relation to Adam. And that's going to be very important because this is why you'll see the doctrine of assurance for Finney was, was not. <laughs> um, and so uh, notice the language about children. Children universally adopt the principle of selfishness because they possess human nature, but not because human nature is itself sinful. I mean, I, you know, he says he doesn't know how he gets there. I just don't know how you read. You know, we're dead in our trespasses. and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, all sin then consists in voluntary acts, no innate, inherent, or derived corruption in human nature. Here are two systems. The one maintains that infants have no moral character at all, him, until they have committed actual transgression. See, a neutral slate. And then the other, um, that their first moral actions are universally sinful, but that previous to moral action, they are neither sinful nor holy, the other system maintains that infants have a sinful nature which they have inherited from Adam. Blah, 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 blah. Um, this is a quote from, you know, Pelagius. I won't go through that. Now look at the, the, what I'd call the, the classical view. Adam was our federal head or representative of his race. The race of humanity is what he means by that, of course. He was on probation for them as well as for himself in the covenant of works. He was not a private individual. He was the type of universal humanity. If Adam were the agent of us all, his act was legally and morally ours. So that's a federal relationship to Adam. And then he's going to go on to explain that. 
um, where hence the scripture teaches explicitly that we are first charged with the guilt see there you go you caught it that was good of Adam's sin and then as the legal consequence are born with natures totally corrupt Charles Dabney says that God was pleased for wise gracious and righteous reasons to connect the destiny of Adam's posterity with the probationary act so making him their representative that whatever moral and whatever legal condition he procured for himself by his conduct under probation in that same moral and that same legal condition his posterity should begin to exist now why is this so important again? This is going to change everything about your salvation. If Adam could act on behalf of all of humanity, good news, so can Jesus. Jesus now, and that's exactly the point of Romans 5, Jesus now can act on behalf of all humanity. Let's, let's turn to that, that Romans passage. I just feel like that's so important uh, in, in the understanding what we're doing here. Romans 5. Anybody has, if you want to turn to it in your Bible, maybe you can find that. I don't know if you're working on that. So he says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now that peace is assurance. When you see peace with God, just think Christian assurance. I'm not... I'm not striving under the, the fear of condemnation. I'm not striving to justify myself anymore. I am, I am at peace with God. That's assurance, okay? And so he says that assurance is by faith. And then he's going to explain how this could be. Let me go on down here. And um, let's get to number... Yeah. Okay, let's just start there. That's good. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, 12, y'all there? Just, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, in other words, the law revealed the sin. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. See, who was a type of the one who was to come. Therefore, he's going to go on to, to argue, you know, for many died through one man's trespasses, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. There's the, there's the connection. And so this is really huge, guys. I, 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 when you start thinking about sin, it's going to affect how you think about salvation, how you think of your assurance in, 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 in that salvation. And if you're thinking that it's this natural transaction, then the only way you can be assured is to be absent sin. But if it's a legal transaction, while I'm still struggling in my sin, I can still have assurance. Because I'm, I'm evaluating what? Christ. And was his work as my covenant had sufficient in order that the covenant of, and a promise of blessing could be given to me? And that's the word imputed, not conferred. Grace imputed, not grace conferred, which means infused, if you will, into us. Now, yes, grace is infused, but that's not relating to the doctrine of justification. That's going to be relating to regeneration, new, being born again. So distinguish between the objective graces of our, of our system and the subjective graces. There's subjective grace, too, 
by mean that this, it's that grace that works directly upon us. But there's objective grace where we're not even in the picture. It's between God and Jesus Christ for us. He's up there on the cross. We're not. And we're legally in Christ on the cross by faith. But we're not actually ever going to go to hell if we're Christians. See? And that's it's an objective grace. And that's very important because your assurance is based on objective, the objective work of God for us. That's outside of us. For us. A transaction. Is there any question about this? Yes. Yeah. Uh, you said earlier that uh, through Adam, through the, the, him being the covenantal head, that his sin was imputed to us, right? Mm-hmm. And you said that through the new covenant, with Jesus as the head, his righteousness is imputed That's right. to us. Even though we ourselves are not righteous, that's right. But under the Adamic covenant here, that's it's right. not only counted against us as mm-hmm. being sinful, but we actually are sinful. And we're actually are righteous too in our new covenant. But we're not. We're not. Are, are but we it's now, not. Are we now, or are we at the end of that? life here on earth well we're not perfectly righteous yet the transformation yeah. is completed right yes yes okay <laughs> so, we are so righteous words, we are becoming righteous but we're not yet fully righteous under that's right the first covenant we're counted as unrighteous and we are unrighteous and even though we still god is still preserved in us we're some beautiful things as with jesus right. righteousness so we have that relate a good relationship with god and we are being uh, imparted. Righteousness is being mm-hmm. imparted. We're in that process, but we aren't done yet. Okay. Is that correct? I think so. Okay. Look down on page... Uh, um, That's good news. Yeah, BB is incredibly good news. Um, look at this uh, page 11. I'm not going to read it, but this this is a little bit of uh, just trying to compare the Protestant view from the Roman Catholic view. Um, and, uh, you know, it's stated a little bit, you know, politically, but I think it's if you want to go back there later and distinguish it. Notice, historically, this is what the, one of the major tenets, as you know, of the Reformation. I wanted to point that out to you. Um, let's see here. Okay, let's go ahead and go over to our conversion issues. Now, here again, I... It, I'll tell you what, we're just going to have to see how we can do this, but let's at least start it. So go ahead, and, and if you're, if there's no other questions, turn over to uh, number nine now, effectual calling and conversion. Now, I've told you how there's a consistency in the confession. Notice how it's going to go back to what we've already learned and then build upon that. So it, could someone read number one, effectual call? Do you have the confession up there? Is this it? Number one. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually on this one. Could someone read that? All those whom God hath predestined unto life, and those only he is pleased, and is appointed an accepted time, effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to 
understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his mighty power determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so, as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. So why the, why the term call, do you think? What's being linked here? You can see it in this definition. You know, we could have said regenerate, the doctrine of regeneration right here. This is pretty much describing what is also described as the doctrine of regeneration. Why didn't they call it that? And it is. It's not a wrong word. It is in the scripture. But, but why didn't they call it that? What are they trying to, to do here, do you think? in relationship to the, the whole system of doctrine that we're studying. Two types of call. Okay, that's true. And they, aren't they trying to differentiate between the two? Yes, by the word effectual call, but why the word call? Why not just call regeneration? I think regeneration implies some kind of, uh, kind of almost like a spontaneous sort of thing that just mm. happens, mm. whereas mm. with a call, it's... It's a an offer that is accepted. There's yeah. there's an action and a response and a response mm -hmm. to that action. And it's derived, but it's coming it's from. Coming it, it's from it's God. a it is a sovereign action of God yeah. to put out a call, and not just as you say the universal call, but this is a unique call because with it comes the power of God by the Holy Spirit that will rebirth you in order to be able to go. Aha, I want it. You wouldn't want it except for the Holy Spirit. You would reject it except for the Holy Spirit. But the call, so it, it's a beautiful phrase when you stop and think because it links the Father and his initiative to the Holy Spirit and his action. There's, there's, the, there's this Trinitarianness coming through here. And, um, and so, effectual call. But just remember, if it confuses you, basically we're talking about the doctrine of regeneration. That's the term that typically gets picked up in a lot of more evangelical circles. But this is more of a, a historic term, all the way back to Augustine. And, and this is how they would refer to it. So, so this, this effectual call um, is of God's free and special grace alone, not by anything at all foreseen in men. Why, why do we know that? Because what did we just learn about men? Men and women, you know, people. Dead. We're, dead. We're dead. How can we start the process? So tell me, what happens first? Got to be brought alive. Well, let me finish my question. <laughs> what happens first? Faith or regeneration? Regeneration. Exactly. Well, that's very interesting because that's not the Armenian or Pelagius position. You see, that's not what Finney would say. You know, he's going to reverse that. Um, and so, uh, and there it is. Now, interestingly, y'all were talking about the age of accountability or something over there on that, that table. Look at this next one. It's pretty interesting. Infant, elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ, which is also effectual calling, and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who worketh when and where and how he pleases, so also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. What is he saying there? It's true that, that, that we're going to be looking for the evidences of saving faith, but God's election and effectual calling is not bound to a developmental process. 
or a you know you know mental situation or whatever you want to call it, right? That's really huge. So that's going to relate to our doctrine of infants in our church. So if a child is born into the covenant family, that is an act of God. I mean, that wasn't an, that wasn't an accident, right? That was an act of God to choose this child for the church. And we recognize that act is significant. We're still awaiting the confirmation that that act of God was in fact the act of elect. He elected this child unto salvation. But it's a huge indication that is ordinarily what it means when God puts a child in a church and grows them up. In a true and gospel-believing church, believe, you know, is what I'm talking about here, of course. And having access to the means of grace. So when we bury a child who dies at one month old, a Christian, who is a member uh, in good standing of our church, vis-a-vis their baptism or election into the church. Would we? Yeah. But we would not have the confirmational aspect of that of that promise, but we certainly would have a promise. You know, vis-a-vis the covenant status of this child, who is a member of the outward house, kingdom of God, or household of God. And so, by age of accountability, we're not saying because if you're if you're in another camp, you're going to say, "Well, you're not a Christian until you profess faith in Christ." We're going to say you're a Christian, just not confirmed until you profess faith in Christ. So we're not going to say that this child is not a Christian because he's not uh, he hasn't re- yet reached the age of. And so, to back to your point, I heard you kind of saying it. We parse it a little differently. We're going to say that quote age of accountability. It's not that this child is not held account is not held accountable for their sins until they reach an age of accountability. See, this is the way that a Pelagian would work it, though. They would say, okay, hold on, I, can't, I just can't stomach the thought of little children who hadn't even talked yet being held accountable for what they don't even know yet, right? That's the logic. So we're going to make up this idea, and I heard you mention that passage. It's a good, good passage, but it, I think it's a little different than what we're saying. That what so what you were going to do is you're going to come up with this idea that okay so God would you know he's a fair guy he's a just guy he's never going to hold them accountable for uh, their sins until they know what they're doing right that makes sense but think about what you're doing again how are you thinking about this child is he is he or she an individual or a communal person in that paradigm well if he's a member of the body then take it into the membership good he's communal. He's a covenantal child. He's a covenantal child. He was born under this federal covenant in Christ. We are waiting for him to, or she, her to confirm it. But it's kind of like, again, we make the same thing. We don't say to it, if you were to be born, you're also born into a family. We don't say you're a gram until one day you confirm that I want to be. I mean, yeah, you're going to confirm it as you begin to live into the gram whatever that is, our, our, our rules and covenants, etc. But, but, but you're, you're not saying you're a gram when you become 12 years old. And you're not going to have the privileges of being a gram. Or you're not going to say all three spheres, church, state, family, are covenantal uh, spheres. Every, all three of them, if you stop and think about it. And so you're not going to say you're an American, but you don't have the rights and privileges of an American until you can actually vote. You want a question? Yeah, I think 
I'm still confused about what's meant by a, a covenant child then yeah. in the church, and yeah. that there's a promise. Like, yeah. what, what's the promise exactly until it's been confirmed? Yeah. It's, it's the promise that ordinarily, I mean, that this child is, by God's decree, which we think was an act of God, remember, it wasn't accidental, this child was placed into the sphere of God's salvation, placed into the sphere, engrafted into Christ outwardly, you could say. And we, we presume even inwardly, but we're awaiting the evidence of that. And, and so if a child dies before the evidence... We just don't really know. No, we do know. Okay. We're saying, what we're going to say is, the only evidence, we we have evidence, and that is God's decree of, of electing this child into a covenant context. So we will, we will, we would, with great confidence, we're going to, we're going to bury this child as a Christian and look forward to seeing him or her in heaven. Just not necessarily because there's always that caveat that we, that, uh, uh, you know, according to God's divine election or decree, of which we did not get the second, if you will, confirmation that, that would come if this person had grown up to be an adult. Um, but, 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 but we do have something, you see? Now, so that, therefore what we're not going to say is that this child is not a sinner. We're going to say this child is born. See, that's that, that other line that I was talking about, about the age of accountability, kind of says, well, really, they don't sin until they know what they're doing. But see, we just define sin as, as a part of a nature that came out of a covenantal relationship to Adam. So this child was born in sin, we say. We were all born in sin. That child is a sinner. At the moment they are conceived, they are a sinner. But they are a sinner saved by grace of, as evidenced by God's divine election into a covenant family awaiting the evidence of saving faith to confirm it. So the age of accountability is not about, well, is God just giving a free pass to kids until they get old enough? No. He is judging them by their sin as guilty from the day they enter the womb. And they is saving them by grace through faith in Jesus Christ from the day he, he, he ordered them or decreed them into the church, even though they have not yet been able to express that faith because they had not reached either the age the age where that can be done because you're self-aware and all that stuff, or, as it makes note of, because you may be, you know, have some kind of a, I don't even know what the right word is anymore for this. What's the, is it handicapped? Is it, what is it, Lisa? Special needs. Special needs, okay. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, do that. So uh, does that answer your question? I feel like I have a distorted thought that it's better if a, if a child dies then before they reject their faith. Oh, no. Do you just yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like, I mean, just logically, I wouldn't obviously yeah. hope for that. But yeah, yeah. like, if there's any chance that the, a child would grow up and reject the faith, then why wouldn't we want that? Well, well remember, what we're talking about is the diff- This is great questions, and this is really parsing stuff out. We are not talking about the child is either from his very conception. We would let's use the word elect. He's either a, of an elect child, a decree of God from before the foundation of the world to belong to God through Jesus Christ. That's true regardless of what we see. So remember, you're not talking about the child status here. You're talking about what we, those people who know the child, can see. And you're just so so. It's true that I, the parent, let's say, the only thing I can see 
is the covenant status of this child vis-a-vis its birth into the household of God. That is something, though. Now, I have not yet seen profession of faith that would give an added, if you will, covenant promise. But in God's decree, he didn't let the child get to that. So I'm going to take that also as a sign of assurance. Because, hey, why would I bias against the child professing faith when the only thing God has done up to this point is put this child into the, the household sphere of God? So we're not talking about what this child, I mean, it doesn't make the, it doesn't, it's clearly not, what I'm clearly not saying, or this doctor's not saying, is that this child has a better chance of being saved if they don't live to the age of accountability or whatever. That's not what we're saying at all. That, that, his chance of being saved was determined by God before the foundation of the earth. What we're saying is what we can discern is more if this child lives longer, obviously. But it's not about a salvation. That's all. Don't we have the responsibility of helping this child walk that way, though? Absolutely. With the church and the parents. And of course, yeah. So that they're not left without knowing. Yeah, oh yeah. We should, like the sermon I gave two weeks ago, um, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we're, you know, those child, they, every child by their right of birth has, has rights to all of the means of grace that God has provided for the family of God. The ministry of word, the ministry of, of community and oversight and care and nurture and all that other stuff. All right? So let's 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 do something here. We're running out of time. I think we've run out. We can't see. What is it? All righty. Um, let's do one. If you could give me one minute, a couple minutes, just maybe two, because I want to tie the loop around with that imputation thing. So notice this this problem here. The problem and solution historically illustrated. Um, this is where um, we go back to Charles Finney, and I, I won't read that big long paragraph. But notice the problem historically illustrated. You see that? It's on page two. So what's the problem? Remember what he said? What's the solution? Um, all, let me show you. Yeah, all sin consists in voluntary acts. No one ate. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Hold on. Where am I talking? This is something else here. Hold it, hold it, hold it. I've already read what this. It is. Yeah, where, where's the solution here? It's uh, halfway down. Where? That was our federal head or representative halfway on this race. Yeah, there it is. Spirit pours out. So notice the way Finney describes uh, the, the, the work of the Spirit here. It's really interesting. And again, I'm going to suggest to you that a lot of evangelicalism is, is a Finney revival sort of thing. Hey, man, we'll be through here in a minute. The Spirit, notice what he says. The Spirit pours the expostulation home with such power that the sinner turns. The Spirit turned him. Just as you would say of a man who had persuaded another to change his mind on the subject of politics. That he had converted him and brought him over. He does not act by direct physical contact upon the mind, but he uses the truth as his sword to pierce the sinner and the motives presented in the gospel are the instruments he uses to change the sinner's heart. Did not the serpent change Adam's heart by motives? And cannot the Spirit of God with infinitely higher motives exert as great power over man as he can? The power which God exerts in the conversion of a soul is moral power. It is that kind of power by which a statesman sways the mind of a senate or by which an advocate or lawyer moves and bows the heart of a jury. See? Well, that's that's Finney. Um, and I'll, I won't go into the rest. Now look at Jonathan Edwards or A.A. Hodge or any of these others. 
The scriptural representations of conversion strongly imply and signify a change of nature, such as being born again, becoming new creatures, rising from the dead. He, God, gives his spirit to be united to the faculties of the soul and to dwell there as a principle of spiritual life and activity. He not only activates the skull, but he abides in it. The mind thus endued with grace is possessed on a new nature. Now, this is a major difference. Because, um, um, and then I won't read the other ones that you have here. You can read them for yourself. Now, the only thing I wanted to talk about with this conversion, we'll pick up on saving faith next week, and I might add it to justification, but we'll see. Um, or we'll come back to it later. I'm not sure when. Just move forward to the next chapter, to the next assignment for next week, and I'll tell you what. But the thing that you want to look at here, I hope you'll read the rest of this, this uh, handout, because oftentimes we associate conversion with only a ministry of, of word that somebody receives, like a message that you, you know, and it is. We certainly believe in the power of the preaching of the, of the, of the gospel. But there's, there's another aspect. So there's the, there's the what we call the covenantal side of, of, of conversion, where someone is instructed as to the nature of this new covenant, and they choose it, right? But the other part of this is a participational way of converting people. That what you see, for instance, in the early church, and I talk about this here, is that people often joined, not joined technically, but but joined the church in terms of participating in it before they became Christians. Because they saw the church as a means of grace in making Christians. Because they are, you think about it, I've given this illustration before, but how do I convert you to Honda Civics? Well, certainly I'm going to take out the blue book or I'm going to take out a whatever, the, the, the manual, the materials, and I'm going to point out all these wonderful facts about the Honda Civic. But I'm also probably going to say, man, you want to take a drive? And my guess is your conversion is as much if not more so related to taking a drive and it just driving the way you like a car to drive and it, and it works in your affections not just your mind. So so again, this is going to get back to something else, but when, when um, Jonathan Edwards talked about religious affections, he's constantly describing that. This, by affection, I mean that, that first principle of religion, he called it. It's that the will. It's what we want. It's what we love. And there is a light and heat component to what we love. There's the light of understanding, enlightenment, we call it, and there's also the heat, the experience of, 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 this, of this whole thing. So, so, one, so what do we do on Sunday morning? You hear me do it all the time. I say things like, if you're not a believer, we're, we're, we just invite you to come and, and just do this with us. You're welcome to participate in anything you want to participate in, except obviously we're going to get the Lord's Supper. And we're actually still saying they're participating in it. They're participating in it by not having it which means it's a, they are participating in self-examination, which is what it calls us to do. So it's interesting that we're going to say, come and do the gospel. Come participate with us. Come to our fellowships. Come to our everything, anything you want. Come. You want to play guitar? Play guitar. You know, we're, the only things you're not going to be able to do is where there is a standard, obviously relative to leadership, that makes you unqualified. But, but in terms of, yeah, come in here and... You want to be on the music team? Be on the music team. Right? See what we're doing? 
conversion is, is both a light and a heat thing. And I think we really, have, we, we, out of the revival and the finny-ish mentality, we have really, the, the whole nature of worship changed. We, you know, before really about the 19th century, you'd never, no, it was really probably uh, the, the 17th century, but before that, you never would have thought of a revival service, i.e. band, Bible, altar call, or music, get you, get you ready for the word. But see, what was it doing? It was focused only on the word. Why? Because for Finney, the Holy Spirit is a lawyer. And I'm trying to work your emotions up so you'll be open to receiving the, 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 the word of God. And then, yes, that's, there's a truth to that. I'm not discounting the fact that there's a lawyer going on here. But it's more than that. It's a new nature. And so what we will do is a, is a covenantal service, right? I mean, what we call a, a, you know, a temple service with the four movements. And we're going to say, yeah, there's going to be a word dynamic, but there's also going to be ritual. There's going to be participation stuff going on here. Come do it. Because of the holistic view of the Holy Spirit working salvation into our lives. All right, let's let's call today. Thank you. God bless. Come back and we'll we'll pick it up next week.